you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. I hope you're ready to go on a monster roller coaster ride with your brain. We have Tom Hartman on the show for the fourth or fifth time. I've lost track. He's been on the show so many times. Famed radio host and brilliant political mind. He's on the show once again with his latest book that's coming out tomorrow, September 13th. 2022 and uh, you can see some of his other interviews on the chris voss show and follow his amazing book series that he has that really you know new york best-selling new york times best-selling author multiple times over i'm sure the hidden history of neoliberalism how reaganism gutted america and how to restore its greatness tom hart will be on the show with us today as always further share your family friends and relatives remind that the chris voss show is the family that loves you but doesn't judge you I might personally do it when if I meet you in person, but the show won't because the show's a corporation. And according to Mitt Romney, corporations aren't people or are people. I don't know. It's when one of his binders of women. You can go look it up. Anyway, guys, <laughs> thanks for tuning in. So we'll be talking to Tom today. He is the nation's number one progressive talk show host for over a decade. His program is live daily from noon to 3 p.m. Eastern Time on commercial radio stations across the U.S. That's the United States, for those of you who can't spell. On a nonprofit stations via the Pacifica Network and on channel 127 of the Sirius XM Satellite Radio Network. The program is also simulcast as TV via the Free Speech TV Network, carrying on DISH and Direct TV Satellite Networks, Hulu, Apple TV Sling, cable systems nationwide on the internet at freespeech.org and everywhere else you can find FSTV. It's also live on YouTube and Facebook as well. Welcome to the show, Tom, again. How are you? Hey, Chris. It's great to be back with you. I'm, I'm fine, thank you. There you go. There you go. And give us a .com for your main site, if you would, so people know where to find you there. Well, the show's website is tomhartman.com. However you spell it, we'll get you there. And my daily blog basically is hartmanreport.com. There you go. There you go. Well, it's good to have you again. We've got your new book here coming out tomorrow. Congratulations on the new book. Tell us what motivated you want to write this one. I've been writing, wanting to write a book about neoliberalism for a decade or more. I mean, it's, it is a word that is poorly understood by most Americans. It is a, a set of political concepts that generally misunderstood as well. Typically, we call it in, in, in our political discourse, Reaganism, trickle-down economics, supply-side economics, a Reagan revolution conservative economics, although none of those really captures the breadth of neoliberalism, you know, what it is, where it came from and why it's important. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I pitched this to the publisher here of this hidden history series, Bear Kohler, and uh, they were all in on it. So I wrote the book. Yes. And it seems like, it seems like Reagan was kind of the peak of the middle class where the middle class seemed to be doing the best or, or do I have that right? Yeah, the, the middle class peaked out in the in the four or five years before Reagan became president, and and it kind of been flattening out largely as a consequence at that point in time because of the inflation that we were experiencing from the Arab oil embargo. 
mm-hmm. and, and the uh, collapse of the oil supplies coming out of Iran in 79 when the Shah got kicked out. But the Reagan, what Ronald Reagan did is he put, he turned America into neoliberalism. He, he altered the 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 trajectory of this nation significantly. We had been operating along the lines of traditional economics, traditional economic theory stuff that goes back to Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and Theory of Moral Sentiments and mm. David Ricardo in the early 1800s, his Iron Law of Labor and all that stuff. And the and and Reagan threw us into neoliberalism, and the consequence of that has been in the 40 years since then, or 42 years since then that we have lost 60,000 factories. We've lost some 10 to 15 million good manufacturing jobs. We've seen the density of unionization in the United States go from a fully a third of Americans, which meant another third of Americans had the equivalent of union wages and benefits because the union set the local wage force. So it was two thirds of Americans. And by coincidence, two thirds of Americans were in the middle class at that time in 1980. We've gone from that down to today where only 6% of Americans are in the private sector have unions representing them. And the middle class is going from 65% of us down to 45% of us. And of the 45% of us in the, quote, middle class, vast majority of that 45% can't do it on a single salary like you could in 1980. Mm-hmm. And many folks in that 45% are only able to maintain that position in the middle class by going deeply into debt, whether it's credit cards or student debt or whatever it may be. You just described my whole financial situation. <laughs> that of most Americans, tragically. That's I mean, true. This is what the Reagan revolution brought us. We had a strong, stable, largely debt-free middle class. In fact, basically, you know, before the Reagan revolution, it was hard to get a credit card. And if you had to go through a real serious song and dance, it took me three years to get my first American Express card. And that was in the seventies, you know, it's a, and, and, you know, Reagan deregulated the industry so that they could just rip people off. Interest rates could be as high as 30%. I mean, up until then, only the mafia charged that kind of interest. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Yeah, I, I used to joke when I was graduating high school. I'm, I'm like, I think in the future, you're not only going to need to have a two income family to survive, but you may need to become a polygamist, you know, like a Mormon, you know, just you know, get three or three wives. Well, and there are, I mean, you've got Republicans like Rand Paul who come right out and say we should do away with child labor laws. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they're done with that. Can we start with his kids first? How old are those guys? I don't know. <laughs> Let's put them in. So uh, this is really interesting. Would you say that this is maybe the number one factor to er- erasing the middle class? I imagine there's yeah. a lot of other ones. You know, Reagan went after unions. And uh, since then, you know, there was Republicans were constantly trying to do everything they could to destroy unions and, and labor power. All those things are, are neoliberalism. Neoliberalism argues, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an economic and political philosophy that argues, number one, that the marketplace is a better, more efficient, and more competent arbiter of how an economy should run than is government. And, you know, which is sort of like saying, instead of having the NFL set the rules for, for football, we're going to have whichever team has the most money set the rules and decide how many players they can have on the field versus how many players their opponents can have on the field and whether their players can grab face masks and their opponents can't because they're going to set the rules. I mean, it's insane when you think about it, but no, that's, that's the, the first tenet is that because millions of decisions are made in the marketplace every moment, right this second, while we're talking, Chris, someplace somebody is deciding which brand of orange juice to buy or which kind of shoes to buy or what, you know, there's literally billions of micro decisions being made. And you couldn't possibly, you know, that represents a huge amount of wisdom and data. And you couldn't possibly emulate that by policy planners or bureaucrats or politicians, completely ignoring the fact that it's a 
damn game. The economy is no more, it would no more or less a game than pull, you know, football or baseball. The difference is instead of throwing a ball around, we're throwing money around and, and producing goods and services. Yeah. And so anyhow, the first rule is the rules of the game or the first rule of neoliberalism is that the rule of the game should be made by the richest and most powerful players, the billionaires and big corporations. And we've seen them completely take over our economy and our political system over the last 30 years in particular. But this all started with Reagan. The second one is that capital is should be able to roam the world freely in search of labor, in search of the biggest labor. And to hell with, you know, any idea of commitment to national, what's best for a nation. And we call that free trade, which we got with Bill Clinton, basically. And, you know, signing the, the NAFTA agreement that George Bush and, and Ronald Reagan had negotiated. The th so free trade is the second tenant. Another tenant of it is that that anything that distorts the marketplace is is an unnecessary and inappropriate interference to the marketplace. And the worst distortion in the marketplace is labor unions, because it gives people the ability um, to to challenge employers. And the employers are the big players in the economy, in the marketplace. And so they're the ones who should be setting the rules, not the workers. Mm -hmm. and, so, and you can see all of these were the, the, the core components, essentially, of the Reagan revolution. Hey, wow. Wow. Hi, folks. Here's Foss here with a little station break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll resume here in a second. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to my coaching, speaking, and training courses website. You can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. Over there, you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements, if you'd like to hire me, uh, training courses that we offer, and coaching for leadership, management, entrepreneurism, uh, podcasting, corporate stuff. Uh, with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as a CEO, uh, I think I can offer a wonderful breadth of information information and knowledge to you or anyone that you want to invite me to for your company. Thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you listening to the show and be sure to check out Chris Voss leadership Institute.com. Now back to the show. Now, you know, you mentioned billions of decisions being made on purchasing and stuff. That's just my girlfriend on Amazon prime. Right now. <laughs> I guess. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Those are the, that explains all those boxes that keep coming to the house and why my credit card company keeps calling. You know, it, it's interesting to me what you mentioned before too, about how, you know, billionaires can go to other places. You wrote some about this in the, in your book, the hidden history of American oligarchy that we had you on the show with. And these guys become pan globalists where they're not really so much concerned about capitalism in the u.s market they're interested in where they can get the cheapest labor and uh, and and then of course we saw like you mentioned with nafta the dissolving of of the what, what used to be the steel belt became the rust belt and uh, labor power and and money and wealth in this country from the middle class yeah it's it's absolutely true and and the the hollowing out of the american middle class mm -hmm. was arguably a predictable result of neoliberalism uh, was imposed on us in 1981. There were a lot of people pointing back to 1920 when Warren Harding became president. There had been a 90, there were the, the top income tax rate at that point was 91%, which mm -hmm. prevented, you know, this was to kind of undo the oligarchy, the, the Rockefellers and the Astors and, and, the, and whatnot, and to prevent that from happening again. We had strong enforcement of our antitrust laws. Teddy Roosevelt and William Hard Taft had just broken up Standard Oil and a bunch of other companies match copper. There was a whole bunch of different monopolies that they broke up. Um, and and when Harding came in, the Republican in 1920, he did away with all that. He dropped the top tax rate to 25%. He deregulated the financial markets. He deregulated the banks. 
And the result of that was the Roaring Twenties, but then ultimately <laughs> 29 and uh, the Great Crash, you know, and, and, the, and what was referred to up until the 1950s as the Republican Great Depression. Wow. And, and you saw some of that with the, with the housing market too. In the, in yeah. The well, that was, that was another neoliberal plan. I mean, Bill Clinton deregulated banking in 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it was mostly Republicans in Congress driving that train, but Clinton signed the law that ended Glass-Steagall, which forbade banks that hold checkbook accounts and savings accounts from using your money to gamble in the stock market, or in this case, in the housing market. And so, you know, once that law was gone, they, they started gambling and it all blew up in our faces in 2008. And we still haven't put Glass-Steagall back. I mean, you know, we're still at risk here and there's some serious problems. Oh, the other thing about Reagan, the second reason why Reagan was hell-bent on destroying the American middle class. I mean, people look back and they go, okay, maybe neoliberalism that he tried was with the best of intention. Maybe it was just because... You know, Milton Friedman sold him on it. He thought that it would work out. He thought that it would help out the middle class. He didn't think it would be a disaster. But actually, in fact, what happened was in 1951, Russell Kirk wrote this book, The Conservative Mind. And and you and I may have discussed this because it's in my oligarchy book. And stop me if you want, if we have. But in The Conservative Mind, Russell Kirk said, at that point in time, we were a decade into the New Deal. And he, and he said, if the middle class continues to grow in wealth and in size as it is now, where it's going to reach a point where the fear of poverty is gone. And when the fear of poverty is gone, you are going to see three predictable results. Young people are going to cease to respect their elders. Women are going to forget their place in the, in the home Mm -hmm. and demand equal rights with men. And minorities are going to forget their place in society and start demanding equal rights with white people. And when those three things happen, you're going to see the collapse of American society. And everybody, you know, the, the conservative intelligentsia, when, when Russell Kirk laid this out in this famous book, The Conservative Mind, you know, most people were like, ah, the guy's a crackpot. But William F. Buckley and Barry Goldwater both completely bought it and preached it, you know, from the rafters. And even in 64, when Barry Goldwater lost the election, it was still only a small portion of the Republican Party that thought that Russell Kirk was right. And then came the anti-war movement. The Steve Love movement, you know, the, the birth control pill was introduced in 61. By 67, we had a, a strong anti-war movement going. By 72, you had the Supreme Court legalizing birth control for unmarried couples. In 73, they legalized abortion, which led to a really strong women's movement in the workplace. And, you know, so you had young people out there burning their draft cards, women burning their bras, and the civil rights movement was on a roll. And they had gotten, you know, voting rights, civil rights legislation, and they were demanding rights of and and people were yelling about, you know, Rodney King kind of stuff. I mean, he came in the 90s. But, and so when the, when the late 60s and early 70s happened, at that point, the, the, the fathers of the GOP who had read Russell Kirk back in the day and thought he was a crackpot, mm-hmm. looked at him and said, holy cow, Russell Kirk was a friggin' prophet. Mm-hmm. And so Reagan's job was to, to the, the middle class was 65% of America at that point. Reagan's job was to cut the middle class down to size so that, Young people would shut up and go to college. In other words, throw them into debt. So they're, you know, afraid of, of getting kicked out of school. Wow. You know, push back on the rights of minorities, push back on the rights of women. And, and basically, you know, using poverty is the great terrifier. Wow. I, that, you know, I remember watching Ronald Reagan on, and I think this is, I, I can't remember if he was still in the governorship of California, but he was on Jenny Carson. 
and he was talking about running and how, you know, the federal government needs to be, you know, less federal government, less regulations. Right at that time. Is this, is this, is neoliberalism, neoliberalism, is it also basically a way of saying unfettered capitalism? Yeah, it is. Ah. And, and smaller government, the the Mm -hmm. government should not play a protective role in, that's called deregulation. That's another neoliberal tenant. The government should not play a protective role. If the marketplace can do that, just fine. Thank you very much. In fact, Milton Friedman, one of the three godfathers of neoliberalism, in one of his books has a whole chapter about how we shouldn't even license doctors. That, that the way that the market works is so magical that if you've got some guy who is pretending to be a doctor and he's doing surgery and he's killing people, word will get around. You know, the marketplace will inform people. And after a half a dozen people are dead, nobody will go to him anymore. You know, we shouldn't have laws that regulate the quality and consistency of our drugs and purity of our drugs or the safety of our food supply. All of these things are the things that the magical marketplace will take care of. Now, in every case, it'll take care of them after a lot of people are dead or injured. And it takes care of them mostly through lawsuits, which can be a long drawn out process. And, but this is what they believe. And the, and the Republican party is completely down with this and has been for 42 years. And about a third of the democratic party is still pushing neoliberalism. Wow. Wow. Now, which part of the Democratic Party, the far left, the middle? It's the, the ones who are pushing neoliberalism are the ones essentially on the right of the of the Democratic Party. It's the, the, the so-called problem solvers caucus, John, uh-huh. John Gottheimer and these guys, you know, who never saw a corporation's money that they weren't willing to take. You know, the guys who are opposed to Medicare for all, the guys who are opposed to the government negotiating drug prices, you know, the, the, the guys who don't want to, who have been fighting any attempt to bring back union rights. Uh, card check legislation that's been on the table for 30 years now, blocked by Democrats who are basically shills for big corporations. So, you know, the Democratic Party, it's a, it's an interesting thing, Chris, in 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 80 or in 78, actually, when when uh, Lewis Powell authored the Supreme Court decision, First National Bank of Boston versus Frank Bellotti, which was the decision where they said that corporations can pour money into political campaigns yeah. and it's called free speech, right? That happened in 78, and that greased the skids for, the, for Reagan to come into office in 1980. He, he came into office on a, on a tsunami, wow. largely money from the fossil fuel industry, but other industries as well. Um, but at that point, the Democratic Party was making all its money or taking all its money out of the labor unions. I mean, you know, quarter of America was unionized. That's a hell of a lot of people. And there was a lot of money in those unions. And so the Democrats just kind of ignored it yeah. you know, that in court decision. But Reagan then took an axe to the unions. And by the end of the 12 years of the Reagan-Bush administration, we were down to about 10% of America being unionized. And the unions yeah. not pay for presidential campaigns anymore. Yeah. And so at that point, Bill Clinton in 92, he's looking around going, what the hell do we do? And Al Fromm and him got together and they came up with this thing called the New Democrats. And the whole thing about the New Democrats was, we're going to do the same thing the Republicans are going to do. We're going to embrace neoliberalism because that seems to be the hot new thing. And we're going to take money from corporations. We'll just only take money from clean corporations. We'll take money from banks, from insurance companies, from pharmaceutical companies and things like that. And we'll leave the dirty industries, steel, fossil fuels, chemicals, we'll leave that to the Republicans. And so that cleavage kind of existed. Clinton bought into neoliberalism, promoted it, signed NAFTA, signed the end of Glass-Steagall, all that stuff, deregulated the telecommunications system, which led to, you know, this massive consolidation of the media, all that stuff. That was Clinton's neoliberalism. And, and then Obama didn't take any effort, didn't make any effort to stop neoliberalism. He didn't actively push it. Although you could argue that Obamacare is a perfect example of neoliberalism because every penny runs through a for-profit health insurance company. Yeah. 
you know, so it, really the first president who has challenged neoliberalism since Reagan was Trump mm-hmm. and against neoliberalism. And frankly, I think that's why he won or one of the reasons. A little help from the Russians. You know, I'm going to raise taxes to, to no lead levels. My friends will hate me. It was a lie. Of course, he cut taxes. He said he was going to bring back our jobs. It was a lie. He did a few tariffs that you know kind of looked like lipstick on a pig, but they didn't have any effect. Mm-hmm. He said he was he was going to support unionization and labor and expand union rights. He did the exact opposite. He cut union rights. But you know, he campaigned against neoliberalism and he and he won. Now we've got Joe Biden, who didn't campaign against neoliberalism, but who is openly challenging neoliberalism. Wow. So, you know, now we've got a president who's actually doing the work, although he's being hampered by these neoliberal Democrats. I mean, Joe Manchin got written into the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, a what's called public-private partnerships, which is a neoliberal concept that says that every penny government spends must go not to workers, not to like government employees. If government, you know, if the government, if, if Michigan wants to build roads, they shouldn't build out a road building crew. They should hire a for-profit corporation to do it. So every penny that gets spent out of the bipartisan infrastructure bill has to go through the hands of a for-profit corporation. So some some person who donates to you know particular politician X can make a buck. You yeah. It's just astounding how both parties are just run by money. And you've written about this and we talked about it before in your books about, you know, stacking the SCOTUS court and making it so that some of the rulings, what Citizens United and different things where you can buy your politician if you have enough money. Yeah, it's the result of Supreme Court decisions. And it's now only maybe a third of the Democratic Party is, is doing that. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Yeah. I try to be in the middle of my Democratic Party. I don't like I'm not I don't really want to have blue hair. So I try and stay away from that far left side and then, but I don't want to be over that far right, but you know, I'm an entrepreneur and, and I, I, I was regulated highly in the nineties with our courier company. We were, we were, we had to do tariffs and all that, so these different regulations. And then Bill Clinton took that away, which was kind of good, but it was actually kind of nice to have our licenses and, and regulation. But, you know, I can see how unfettered capitalism, cause I've watched, you know, I, 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 I graduated in what, 86. And so I was starting to see the Ivan Bioski stuff and the milk and stuff and the junk bonds and the, the dissolving of Main Street into Wall Street. And, of course, the siloing that we've seen of, you know, the Elon Musk and the and Jeff Bezos and, you know, the siloing of, of America, especially when they can go overseas and do whatever they want. You write in your book, it was kind of interesting, Milton Friedman hearts General Pinochet, which is kind of an interesting story, I think, in your book. Yeah, they, 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 these guys came up with this idea of neoliberalism in the 40s. And mm-hmm. about the 50s and 60s, they were preaching it. And you know, sort of like Russell Kirk, everybody thought they were crackpots. But they, they got some traction in the, in the Republican Party anyway by the 70s. And, but they, they needed proof of concept. And nobody had ever tried neoliberalism the way that they had laid it out in a systematic fashion. And so down in Chile, Salvador Allende had just gotten reelected. He was very popular. He, they called him a socialist. He, he was really more of a Sweden socialist, if you will. Mm-hmm. There was a strong social safety net. There were some government-run industries. The government controlled about, about a third of the telephone systems in the country, for example. But IT&T controlled the other two-thirds. And, but the, the big problem was the, the, the major source of the entire country's wealth was a series of copper mines that were owned by three American companies. 
and that, that went back to colonial days that they had bought from like old Spanish colonizers back in the day. And these companies were basically raping Chile. They were just, you know, extracting or robbing, you know, just extracting all this copper and and paying these little pittance, you know, penny of the dollar uh, royalties to Chile. And so Allende put together a commission. He said, we're going we're gonna to take these away from these American companies. We're going to pay them a fair price for the loss of their business. And the, com- the purpose of the commission was to figure out how much they had to give to these companies. And they ultimately came up with a number. It was hundreds of millions of dollars, which would be, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money. And, you know, he, he made the deal and he said, okay, we're going to do this. And he said, oh, and by the way, we're going to privatize IT, the, the phones or we're going to, we're going to make public the, the phone systems. We're going to take those away from IT&T. So the copper, copper companies went to Henry Kissinger, who was the, the advisor at the time to Richard Nixon, this was during the Nixon administration. And the, or maybe he was even Secretary of State, I don't recall exactly what his role was at that particular moment. And, and IT&T went to the CIA and said, we've got to overthrow this guy. He, he is, he is, you know, taking our money. And so Nixon, Kissinger, and the CIA conspired with this general in the, in the Chilean army, Augusto Pinochet, to overthrow the government. And they did it. They did it on 9-11, 1973. Wow. And that is Chile's 9-11. It was September 11th, 1973, that they overthrew the government. As Pinochet and his tanks rolled into, into the capital city, Allende went before a radio microphone. He only, about two dozen people were still with him in the presidential palace, gave his final address, and then shot himself in the head. So the next decade or so, Milton Friedman was traveling down to Chile and invi- advising these guys. They privatized virtually everything. One of the first things they privatized was the country's social security system. The result of this was mass unemployment, a collapse of the Chilean, but 20, 30% inflation. The economy just absolutely went to hell. All these American companies came in because they dropped all the tariffs and all the trade restrictions. All these American companies came in and just basically started buying up, you know, ranches and farms and land and businesses and everything else and just taking all the money out of the country and leaving none of it behind. Wow. American management. And the people were very upset about this. And when they started protesting, Pinochet started killing them. He yeah. was literally, I mean, you know, I was at a, a rally here in Portland summer before last, and the Proud Boys were there, and they were wearing T-shirts that said, free helicopter rides for liberals. And because that's what Pinochet was doing. He was throwing, he would take people up in helicopter, out over the ocean, and drop them from 3,000 feet as a way of killing them. And he was quite proud of it. He publicized it wow. in, the, in the national stadium. He tortured over 10,000 people. There are thousands of bodies buried there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so ultimately, they got rid of Pinochet. I mean, his neoliberal experiment was a complete disaster. And that's why, you know, Republicans and neoliberals don't talk about Chile very much. Or if they do, they try to, they try to pretend that it was a wonderful success. You could actually find websites, conservative websites, claiming that the Chilean miracle is all horse crap. So then, that, you know, that didn't work. So then they tried it here in the United States in 1980 with Reagan. And, you know, our economy is so large and our government was so large and there's so many different systems that they could... They, you know, it really took a decade or two to chip away enough that, that they had done the kind of damage to America that they did to Chile in the first three weeks. And so we didn't really realize what was going on until the late 90s, frankly. Mm-hmm. Then in 91, they, Russia, you know, Gorbachev unwound Russia or unwound the Soviet Union. And he was trying to turn Russia, the, the new Russia that emerged out of this, he was trying to turn it into Sweden. I mean, he came right out and said, Sweden is my role model. I want to create a, a, a wow. liberal, 
democratic socialist nation with strong labor protections and a strong social safety net. It'll make an appropriate transition out of communism where the government provided for all needs now, but we're going to have a, a completely, you know, regulated capitalist market. And he went to the IMF, him and Yeltsin went to the IMF and, and, and to the United States. And part of this was during the Bush administration. Part of it was during the early years of the Clinton administration and said, we need, you know, we're going to need a trillion dollars to do this. I mean, we're, we're literally taking the second largest country in the world or third and, and completely changing our economic and political system. It's going to take some money. And the IMF said, we will only give you that money if you engage in neoliberal shock theory, if you wow. do what Pinochet did in Chile. And so they did. They had no choice. They did. And, and the predictable result of neoliberalism is always oligarchy. We've had oligarchy wow. in the United States for three decades. You know, you can't pass meaningful legislation if the oligarchs oppose it, which is why we don't have a national health care system. We don't have free college, you know, et cetera. And, and the oligarchy that emerged in Russia is now headed by the uber oligarch, probably the richest man in the world, Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And, and oligarchy, the problem with oligarchy is it's a very unstable political system. And it typically only lasts, if you look at history, I mean, all the way back to the Roman Empire, it typically only lasts one or two generations. And then either there's a popular uprising and you have an eruption of democracy, which takes back over, or it flips into fascism. And Russia is on the verge of a complete trap with state, although there is a strong democratic movement. It's now starting to challenge Putin. I wrote about this today at Hartman Report. Yeah. And, but, you know, this is, oh, and we tried it in Iraq too. George W. Bush wanted to try it in Iraq. And so, you know, he, he shut down all the government owned businesses and, and uh, privatized everything. And the result is that Iraq is now a fascist government. Nouri al-Maliki is, is uh, you know, he's not, he, he, arguably Saddam Hussein was a more benevolent dictator than this guy. And, and you almost saw it on January 6th. And we may see it again if we don't, elections go the wrong way. And of course, we have these election deniers. And, and uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of at that crossroads. That's really shocking what you talk about. I, I had you on the show, I think the day after or shortly after January 6th. And I'm, I'll never forget, you threw me off my chair, literally in my head, because you're like, you remember, what, uh, you said at the end of the show, you said, uh, you know what they, they, they call January 6th, a practice or a warm up or a rehearsal. And I was just like, Oh man, what is this? Ooh, a rehearsal. Yeah, a rehearsal. And I was just like, I remember just being floored. It's, it's stayed with me ever since. And I've quoted you on it ever since. But and, and every time I tell it to people, they just go, wow. And, but that's interesting what you say, the one to two generation about how we either go to fascism or we have, you know, we have these kids nowadays that don't, the Gen X, I think it's the Gen Zs, don't believe in capitalism anymore. And so. Well, um, I, I think mm -hmm. broadly the Zoomers would, would just, I mean, they, they realize that unregulated capitalism is, a, mm -hmm. is fundamentally evil. I mean, you know, it, it will always produce oligarchy and fascism. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, the, the old definition of fascism, and last time I saw it this way was the 1987 American Heritage Dictionary, was that fascism is the merger of corporate and state interests com combined with belligerent nationalism. Wow. And, you know, I think that's probably the best definition of fascism that's ever been written. And uh, yeah. Yeah. You talk about the end of your book about getting back to what, oh, here was it? I, I think it was Andrew Jackson, what Andrew Jackson had for a vision for America or how we can get yeah, back Alexander away Hamilton. from this. Yeah. Alexander Hamilton. Tell us yeah. more about that. Alexander, in, in, when George Washington was elected president in 1789, he had to, you know, go to New York, which was then the seat of government. 
uh, to be inaugurated. And he wanted to be sworn in wearing American-made clothes. It was a big deal for him because the British had outlawed the manufacture of clothing in the United States. Everything had to be purchased from British mills via the East India Company. Wow. And by the way, that was not something the British only did in the 1700s or the 1600s and 1700s. That's why the logo for Mahatma Gandhi's movement was the spinning wheel, why he would sit at the spinning wheel whenever he did press conferences and things, because it was illegal to make cloth in India. That's right. All the British, right up until I think 1957 was the year they got independence. Could be wrong. Maybe it was 54, but it was around there. And, and so Washington wanted America to, to compete with it. He didn't want us to be buying from England. He wanted to build an industrial economy here. Oh, you know, what for his day would have been an industrial economy. So he turned to his treasury secretary, Alexander Hamilton, one of the smartest guys around and said, you know, how do we do this? And Hamilton looked at how England did it. And this goes back to the 1540s, I think it is, when Henry VII looked at how the Dutch had done this in the 1300s and the 1400s. And the Dutch had become the, the, the people who ruled the seas by the late 1400s, the Dutch and the Spanish. And the Dutch had done this system and Henry VII adopted it. It's referred to as the Tudor system. And then Alexander Hamilton cloned it here in the United States, and he called it the American system. That was his 11-point plan. He submitted it to Congress in December of 1791. And by 1793, most of it was adopted as law or policy. And it was basically, these, the, the 11 points were basically, number one, you put a tariff on the import of finished goods that compete with American-made finished goods. So you want to give American manufacturers a price edge domestically. And number two, you want to encourage the export of goods that are manufactured in the United States so the rest of the world can become our market. So you have no tariffs on those goods and you may even subsidize them or you may at the very least provide things like the Navy to protect shipping channels so that it's easy to transport your goods to other nations. Um, he, the, he said that there needs to be a national road system that the federal government should get involved in building roads and infrastructure for you know to promote commerce. That there are industries that are critical to building other industries, you know, like having a steel industry, for example, or having, you know, or back then it was an iron industry. I'm not sure when steel was invented, but what probably by then, but whatever, you know, that there are industries that are like the foundational industries on which everything else built and that those industries, we should actually be subsidizing. We should be giving them tax breaks or we should even give them, call them pecuniary bonuses, which is, you know, subsidies. And I'm forgetting all the points, but, you know, those were the essential important ones. And he put that, George Washington put that into place in 1793, and it built America really rapidly as the largest and most rapidly growing industrial power in the world, right up until the 1980s when Reagan reversed that, when Reagan said, okay, enough, I'm going to abandon the, the American plan. We're going to embrace neoliberalism, start free trade. Free trade is the exact antithesis of, of what Alexander Hamilton proposed. So we operated under the Hamilton system from 1793 until 1981. We've been operating under the neoliberal system from 1981 or the Reagan system until this very day. Also an interesting anecdote of this. I lived in China in November of 1986. And, and during that time, the Chinese government, you know, Mao had just recently died and the, 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 the Cultural Revolution had been a disaster for the country. It, it, it had just left them in poverty and shambles. And there had been this huge famine just a decade earlier. And uh, so they were trying to figure out, how do we reinvent China? How do we build a China that can be, you know, an industrial power like America? 
And there were these two sets of advisors to the Chinese government who were having this really wild debate. And the, and basically one set of the advisors was saying this new neoliberalism thing, this looks like what we re really need to go with. I mean, there's a lot of promise here and it was economists who came up with it. And so let's just embrace neoliberalism. And and this was around the same time, you know, in 91, that Russia was being forced to embrace it. And, and at the time, much of the world thought it would be a good thing. It would be an experiment in Russia that would turn out well. And then also in China, there was another group who were looking back at the history of the United States, and they were openly saying, we need to adopt Alexander Hamilton's American plan. I mean, they literally used that language. And by 93, the Chinese government had made the decision and they chose to go with Alexander Hamilton's plan rather than neoliberalism. They, they, they dodged the bullet. And that's why next year, China will be the largest economy in the world. It will have surpassed the United States in GDP. And right now, as we're speaking, Chris, Chinese middle class is larger than the entire population of the United States. And they get most of it with power dollars. 60,000 American factories closed. 15 million American jobs went to China. And, you know, companies like Apple are laughing all the way to the bank. Crazy, man. Wow. That explains why China has risen. I always thought it was just the, the, the amount of people they had. But, no, they, you know, you try to sell an American manufactured product in China. It's damn hard. Yeah. They, they really work to keep out imports. Oh, but yeah. they love exports. Oh, they yeah. Exports. You know, this is the thing I love about your books, and, and people should buy your books and listen to your radio show. You're so great at taking, you know, if, if you watch a TV show, you'll see somebody, you know, they'll compartmentalize. Okay, here's what happened in 1980 or what this guy did or what that guy did. You're so great at, like, tying all the things together so you can see the history weaving of it. And that's what I love about everything you do on your show and stuff. I'm an old so I lived all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it all. You don't seem like you're around at Alexander Hamilton's time. No, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. These guys were so amazing, Alexander Hamilton and, and some of these early thinkers. They yeah. it was so it was the foresight that they had was just extraordinary. Oh, it really is. In fact, that's the next book in the series is going to be the history of American democracy and I'm writing that right now. In fact, I think I this last weekend finished the first draft, at least my own first draft of it. I've got a November 1st deadline to get it to the publisher. And an awful lot of it is living inside the minds of Ben Franklin, mm -hmm. and Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and Alexander Hamilton, and all the debates and all the, the scrum and Thomas Paine and all the back and forth. And, and, and the philosophers of the Enlightenment, you know, from, from David Hume to, to Thomas Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Diderot, I mean, all those guys, it's, it's just a fascinating time. And, and I'm really having fun writing this, this next crazy book. stuff, man. So you talk about your book, how is, is, do we have a chance? Can we get it? Can we uh, get off of neoliberalism? Do we have to have a revolution of some type or? I think we can do it incrementally. I mean, it, it came in incrementally. It <laughs> came out incrementally. Um, mm -hmm. We've got a strong resurg resurgence of the labor movement right now. Yeah, really strong. The, the main thing that has kneecapped the labor movement is the Taft-Hartley Act and a series of Supreme Court decisions, both of which would be overturned by this new bill that Elizabeth Warren is championing called the National mm -hmm. Right to Unionize Act. So, you know, do away with right to work for less. With regard to international trade, Biden has kept Trump's tariffs in place. That's kind of interesting he did that, huh? Yeah, in my mind, that's incredibly symbolic. It's, it says that he's not embracing neoliberalism. It does get that it's appropriate to protect an economy. And I think that if he can get a large enough majority in the, in the House and Senate going forward, 
you know, any attempt to raise tariffs right now would be blocked by people like Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. But maybe he can get enough Democrats on board that he can start going back to, you know, that we can have a, an industrial, you know, a, a national industrial policy. We haven't had one since 1980. Reagan just abandoned that. Um, that's another thing, you know, stopping the privatization of our schools. This is a very destructive trend that is another facet of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Lean student debt, another piece of neoliberalism, getting health care to all Americans, you know, undoing another piece of neoliberalism. So, and, and, and like I said, you know, thank God for the first time in, 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 since, since 1980, we've had a president who is trashing neoliberalism and embracing in classical economics, Adam Smith. It's interesting, two of those things, two of those three things that you said, if I understand correctly, a Bessie DeVos is an oligarch for. Oh, yeah. Her father who put in the plan to stack SCOTUS from going back to Nixon, which is what you educated me on. Yeah, I don't know about her father, but I I do know that she's a billionaire who thinks the the public schools. Yeah. Didn't her father start the Center for National Policy that worked? It would surprise me, but somebody else must have told you that story. That must be not a Center for National Policy expert. Yeah, it was. It was kind of interesting. It started from the the Nixon administration and the 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 intent. You know, it started with the rise of abortion, and they used abortion. They found abortion was the way to get voters out. It's really interesting what's happening right now. And and you talked about what Biden can possibly do with legislation, and of course everything's going to be in play in the twenty twenty two election. When I heard the you know the leaking of the SCOTUS potential that they would overturn abortion, Roe versus Wade, I I remember saying to people, you know. Democrats don't want to seem to unvote. They don't seem to care about 2022 and looks like, you know, it's going to be a landslide. And I said to people, I said, maybe if they do, maybe we need them to overturn Roe versus Wade so that we can get out the vote. And it looks like that's worked. It's kind of, it's kind of a weird way to do things, but it may save us. Or if Democrats can focus on abortion, Mm -hmm. guns, on the environment, you know, and, and climate change and on the, the threat to democracy. I think those four key elements will win uh, a lot of races. And hopefully so. I mean, we need at least get the Senate if we're going to, if we're going to yeah. try and influence SCOTUS. If we don't get the Senate, I mean, it's, they're going to go to your judges. Yeah. And, and of course, I, I really don't want to see the House turn into a romper room, you know, 15 things on Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, yeah. committees. <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, it was wonderful having you on the show. And like I said, again, I really recommend people check out your books. I've learned so much from you and, and just having you on the show, your books, your radio show is just immense to do. I get your mailing list every day and just the extraordinary amount of data that's on there. It's just about the, the TomHartman.com, our, our daily from our show. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. From the yeah. show. And it's got all your references and footnotes and stuff. Yeah. And it's extraordinary to, to go through. So thank you very much for everything you do. It's wonderful to have you on the show again, my friend. It's been my pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Back. Thank you very much, sir. Give us your .com one more time so people can find oh, it. Report.com and Tom. There you go. Guys, order up the book and uh, check out everything Tom does because not only, not only does he, he interweaves it and everything, he puts it in a very simple, clean language. And it's not like, it's not like you got to, you gotta when you do the radio show, man, he just weaves right through and you go, this makes sense because A equals B equals C, and you put all together. Order of the book comes out tomorrow, September 13th, 2022, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. It's part of the Tom Hartman Hidden 
History Series. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We certainly appreciate you guys. Go to youtube.com, Fortress Chris Voss, all our places on the internet, the big LinkedIn group, and the LinkedIn newsletter as well. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time.